Right. Good morning again, everyone. If you have your Bibles, we are finishing up our study through the book of Second Timothy. If you need a Bible, Mike has got some in his hand. Just raise your hand and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Second Timothy chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 22. Starting in verse 6, but let's go ahead and just read verses 6 through 8. Then we'll pick up the rest of the verses as we go along because it's a big chunk here. Paul's writing to Timothy, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The title of my study this morning is Paul's Epitaph. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to be in this place where we know, Lord God, you're speaking to our hearts. You have something to say to each one of us personally, Lord, and corporately as a church. We thank you for the sweet time of worship that we've had, Lord, that we just are able to pour out our hearts in adoration and praise to how great you are and amazing you are, Lord. We thank you that we are your child, Lord, that we can sing we are a child of God. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in this church. We pray your blessing upon our children downstairs as they are taught your word this morning, that they would have receptive ears to hear, Lord, what you have to say to them as well. And so, Lord, we just give you all the glory and the honor and the praise for the work that you're doing here this morning. We pray, Father, also, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into the saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, that they would wait no longer, that they would give their lives to you today. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Epitaphs. They can tell you something a little bit about the person, you know, in a way that on your gravestone, you know, it can be your, your last words that are literally, you know, Written in stone. Well, I found a few that were kind of interesting. You may have heard these before. For example, this one from a cemetery in Rudoso, New Mexico. The marker reads, Here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. (laughs) Get it? I thought that was the best one out of all of them. We're just going to, we're going to go downhill from here. If I thought that was the best, we're in trouble. But I'll give them to you anyway, since I wrote them down here. The grave of Ellen Shannon in Girard, Pennsylvania. This is almost a consumer tip. Here lies Ellen Shannon, who was fatally burned March 21st, 1870, by the explosion of a lamp filled with R.E. Danforth's non-explosive burning fluid. How about Anna Hopewell's grave in Ennisburg Falls, Vermont? Her epitaph sounds like something from a Three Stooges movie. Here lies the body of our Anna, done to death by a banana, it wasn't the fruit that laid her low, but the skin of the thing that made her go. Last one. <laughs> a widow wrote this epitaph in a Vermont cemetery. I guess they didn't have personal ads back then. And so they wrote, Sacred to the memory of my husband, John Barnes, who died January 3rd, 1803. His comely young widow, age 23, has many qualifications of a good wife... And yearns to be comforted. 
<laughs> I'm available. <laughs> if there were to be a single sentence that summed up your life, what would it be? See, one of these days, we're all going to give our last message, our final will and testament. But we don't know when that day will be. This could be my final message to you, or I could have another 20 years from today. I don't know. But there is going to be a final statement, a final meal, a final moment in your life. Therefore, not knowing when that day could come, we always want to live as though we're ready to go, ready to meet our Lord. Let me ask you this morning, if you could read your own obituary, your own epitaph, what would it say? What would it read? What would people remember you for? What would your family members say? What would you be known for? Well, here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we don't have to guess about the Apostle Paul because he really gives us his last will and testament, his, his swan song. These are his final words. Paul, Paul's turbulent life, life was coming to an end. Yet he had truly made a difference, a big difference. And he knew that his time was at hand, and so he wanted to pass on to Timothy these final thoughts. And he lets us know these three things before he goes. If you're taking notes, his flight, number one, his fight, number two, and his friends, number three. Now, before we get to point number one, I want to point out what has gotten us to this place, what events have led to Paul to be in this prison where he's at, leading him to write this epistle. See, it all started when Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem to preach there, to preach the gospel. And there was this prophet named Agabus who uh, took Paul's belt off of him and, and bound his hands and his feet and said, this will happen to the man that goes to Jerusalem. And he was prophesying to Paul that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to go bound hand and foot. When the believers heard that, they didn't like what they heard. They began to weep and beg Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, hey, what's with this weeping? You're breaking my heart. Listen, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem, be jailed in Jerusalem, and even, for Christ's sake, be, die there if need be. So what if I'm going to be arrested? See, I believe that Paul really meant what he said on the Damascus Road there when he got saved in his conversion, when he said to Jesus, Lord, what will you have me to do? Whatever it is, Lord, I will do it. Paul did not fear imprisonment. He didn't fear what man could do to him. He gave his life completely to the Lord. He practiced what he preached. Because it was Paul who, who gave us these words, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price. And he lived that out. Lord, whatever you have me to do, I surrender to you. Well, Paul got his wish. He goes to Jerusalem and, and preached there. And sure enough, just like was prophesied, you know, they got angry with them. They, 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 you know, they bound him. They wanted to kill him. They took him over to, uh, and have him whipped and, and then transferred him to this Roman governor named, named Felix. So he had to appear before Felix. While well, he's sharing with, with Felix and, and then Paul got there and, and if Paul had played his cards right, he could have been released. He could have said, all right, you know, Felix, well, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. I'm going to let you go. But Paul, he appealed to Caesar. See, a Roman citizen at that time could appeal to Caesar for any, any crime whatsoever. Uh, Paul had spoke to Felix about righteousness, about self-control, about judgment, to come and, and challenge Felix, but, but Felix would not listen to that. So then when Paul appealed to Caesar, then Paul had to go to Caesar, had to go to Rome. And so Paul was put on a ship, he was sent to Rome, but on the way the ship started getting rough, rough seas, it crashed, the Lord spoke to Paul and said, hey, everybody's going to be fine if they all stay on the ship. 
And so, uh, they, you know, they, they were fine. They got to this island. There were the island. Paul's warming himself by the fire. You remember the, the viper came up and latched onto Paul's arm. He kind of shook it off because it wasn't time Paul, Paul's time to go yet. And the people on the island, all oh, they thought Paul's a god, you know, and, and all that. But then they finally got Paul to the prison in Rome. Now, this wasn't, you know, a nice five-star prison. This was a Mamertine prison, which was nothing more than a cold, dark cave cell with no window, only a hole through the, which the food could be lowered. He was basically in a smelly pit. And it was there in this prison that Paul writes these words, knowing that he's going to appear before Caesar Nero, and uh, that Nero, this, this could be it. His life could be over. So basically he says, bring it on. I'm ready. This brings us to our first point, uh, his flight. Look at verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, I don't know about you. When I go on a trip, I'd like to be ready. I want to leave on time. I check my departure times. I understand how long it takes me to get to the airport. I kind of get in my mind how long it's going to take me to get through security, and, and I want to have plenty of time to catch my flight. Now, to be very honest, my wife and I have a little disagreement over when and we should get to the airport. She kind of thinks that we could wait to the last minute and then not have no problems with that. And, and uh, you know, and, and I kind of, you know, it's not Springfield, of course. I mean, Springfield, you can fly in, you know, an hour before and you can go. But any other airport, I mean, you just don't know. And, and I'm not relaxed. And you can ask my wife and my kids. I'm not relaxed until I have made it through security, you know, made it to my gate. And I'm sitting there, I go, Phew. Okay, now I'm ready to go. I'm ready for my departure. Let's go. Now, you know, depending on where you're going kind of determines your outlook. If I have a doctor's appointment, you bet I'm going to wait till the last minute. I don't care, you know. <laughs> if I miss it, I miss it. You know, that's the way it is. But, but, but man, if I know I'm going to Hawaii, oh, man, I may be there three hours early, you know. Because your destination determines your attitude towards it, right? Your outlook. Paul knew that he was he, he, where he was going. He knew he was going to heaven. His departure was at hand, leaving out of gate 777, heading for heaven. Now, early in his letter to the Philippians, Paul said to the believers there, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Then he said, I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul, kind of struggling, he knew. Now, 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 granted, Paul had a marked advantage. He'd already, already died and gone to heaven and then returned back to the earth. You may say, what? I've never heard that story before. Yeah, it's true. Paul had died and gone to heaven. He speaks of it. You can look it up later in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It speaks of how he was caught up into the third heaven and saw things that were indescribable. Many commentators believe that probably, that probably happened outside of the city of Antioch after Paul had been preaching the gospel and the people of the city um, grabbed Paul and they stoned him and they left him outside of the city, left him for dead. But then he came back to life again. So it's thought of at that time that Paul's spirit left his body and he was caught up into the presence of the Lord. Could you imagine Paul then standing before his Lord? I mean, there he was, the one who, who had called him on the road to Damascus. There, there he was before the one who had pardoned him of every sin. Man, Paul was no doubt ready to be there, ready to stay there. And here's the Lord saying something to Paul like, Paul, it's good to have you here. I've got some good news and some bad news. First, the good news. Paul, you're coming back. 
Coming back? What do you mean coming back? Lord, am I going somewhere? Well, that brings me to the bad news, Paul. See, you've got to go back to the earth again. Why, Lord? Why? I just got here. Well, because i got this work for you still to do. There's some people down there I want you to preach to. There's some believers there. Right now, they're praying for you. They're gathered around your body. They want you to be resurrected from the dead. Lord, don't listen to them. They're sinners. What do they know? Let me stay here. But God answered their prayer and Paul lived again. But you've got to bet, ever since that time, Paul was homesick for heaven. I mean, he had a glimpse of heaven. Oh man, this is amazing. He wanted to go home. You know, that tells us that, that heaven is not a place of unconscious oblivion. It's not a place where just kind of, ooh, you know, spiritual, conscious, no, no, no you know, weird thing going on. It's, 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 it's a place of conscious existence. It's a place where our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is at. And Paul here is, is finally going home to be with Christ, not merely sit in a grave. This was the next step in his life. It wasn't the conclusion of his life. It was a new beginning. It was a promotion. This was a, a coronation. Death held no terror to the Apostle Paul. So he says, my departure is at hand. Now, it's interesting that the word he uses here for departure it's a, can also be used to, to break camp, to, you know, to, to, to take down your tents, to, to break camp. I don't know if, you, if you're a camper, if you've gone camping before. Uh, you know, my idea of camping nowadays is a 24-foot trailer with a king-size bed and air conditioning parked on Table Rock Lake, right next to a grocery store. And, I mean... I mean, I've done a lot of camping in my life. When I was a kid, I did a lot. I, I just remember after a week-long camping there, all I could think about was getting in that bathtub, then, then getting that hot bath, clean sheets, and a soft bed. I thought, oh, this would be great. I was always happy to break camp. I was always happy, man, let's take this tent. Let, let's get this tent down here. Paul says, I'm ready to break camp. I, I'm ready. Let's, let's take this old tent down and move on. It's as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. No doubt Paul and his physical body where he was at at this point is going, man, this old tent is beaten up. It's, it's broken. I need this new body. And so he says, my departure, man, it, it, it's, I'm ready to go. Let's, let's get rid of this old tent. Finally, this word for departure also could be described as being a boat being untied from its moorings. So Paul is saying, it's time to set sail, time to be set free from the dock, time to strike the camp, it's time to catch my flight, my departure is at hand. Paul was ready. Now one more thing before we move on. What is this drink offering that Paul is talking about? He says in verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Well, the drink offering was a part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was the final offering that, that, that followed the burnt and the grain offerings prescribed for the people of Israel found in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 1 through 16. They would take a glass of wine, they would pour it out as an offering, either on an altar or on the sacrifice, or they'd actually pour it onto the ground. This would mean that it, this is irrecoverable. They couldn't recover that drink that is poured out. Paul is saying, I'm poured out. I'm spent. That's it. This brings us to our second point. The fight. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, 
and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The, the word that Paul uses here for fight pointed to the Greek, uh, you know, the Greek in which men would struggle against each other with, with all of their might. I mean, these were barbaric fights that they would have. I mean, it would like, look, you know, make MMA ultimate fighting, you know, look like it was, you know, patty cake or something. You know, when I was young, boxing was done with gloves on, you know, and there were certain punches that, that were against the rules and until ultimate fighting came around. And now it's like there's, there's no rules. I mean, you can beat each other with bare fists and kick them in their faces until the, the blood is drying out and pounding each other until one either gives up or is knocked out. I've read that people have even been killed in ultimate fighting. Listen, in the Christian life, we can get pretty beat up spiritually as well. It's not easy at times being a Christian. Because once you give your life to Christ, you immediately find that you have an adversary. And it's the devil. And he wants to bring you down. Now let me say this. Man is never the enemy. Man may be used by the enemy for his purposes, but man is never the enemy. What do I mean by that? Well, often in our zeal, we are guilty of fighting what we perceive as evil, but end up really fighting each other. And that doesn't please the Lord. Paul gave this warning in, in Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, be less, beware lest you be consumed by one another. See, we need to focus on who the real enemy is. His name is Satan, and he comes dressed as an angel of light. That's why he's so successful. He, he hides his true colors. And he wants to cause us to fight the wrong enemy. Yes, a person may be a tool in the devil's hand and they may speak the devil's words and they may do the devil's business even in the church and to you and to me, but that person is never the enemy. If anything, they need our prayers and they need to be delivered from the enemy. But there's this warfare going on. And Paul is saying here, I fought the good fight. He's done. He's poured out. Now, if you can imagine Paul's life as, as a fight, I mean, uh, you know, he had some pretty good fights. I mean, he would go into the town and he would go to preach the word and he would get beat up quite a bit. But the Lord was always there cheering him on. Come on, Paul, I got more work for you to do. I want you to go over here. The Lord never gave up on Paul. Do you ever feel like your life as a Christian is kind of getting beat up? I know it does for me. You get up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to read my Bible before I do anything else. And suddenly you get punched in the gut with a broken pipe in your house. You know, or, 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 or bam, a sick kid, or bam, a phone call that keeps you away. Or you get up in the morning and say, Lord, I'm going to share the gospel with this family member, this co-worker who desperately needs Christ. And you get to work and, and you go to share with them and bam, they just reject it. And they start mocking you and you go, oh man. And you feel beat up. But you pick yourself back up again and you say, but you may say, Lord, I don't want to fight anymore. But here's the Lord Jesus, and he's saying, come on, you can do this. You're on the winning side. Get back in there. There's no way you can lose. Keep fighting. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you the, the ability. Hang in there. Let's go. And you go in there, and you start fighting again. And bam, man, you get a few good punches in. You know, and, and all of a sudden, you got some answered prayer. And you go, whoa, Lord, bam. And you got that family member that got saved. Oh, my Lord, it's great. That co-worker, they got saved. You're fighting. Oh, boy, this is great. And you get excited. And you get getting stronger. It's like, the, you know, the final scene in Rocky Balboa. You know, you're just, oh, yeah. You know, and, 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 hallelujah, Adrian. Because <laughs> you're excited. Because God is using you. And you're having these victories after victory. 
Listen, because the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Paul is saying, I'm done. I've fought the fight for so long now. I'm ready to finish my fight. Now, you and I, we're still in the fight. Now, we still need to suit up. Paul tells us in Galatians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And he tells us, again, our fight in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And let me tell you this. We're not going to be done with this fight either. Not until the Lord takes us home, and not until we're safely in His arms. You know, you hear people say, well, well, when will all these temptations cease? When will I not be tempted anymore? Not until we're in heaven. Now, the Christian life is not only compared to a fight, Paul says here, but he also compares it to a race. And now we need to fight to the finish line. See, Paul says here, I fought the good fight. Then he says, I have finished the race. Now, we know Paul through our studies in Timothy, that he's been a, a, a sports fan. He's been a, a, a really a fanatic when it comes to athletics and, and, and running a race he used quite often. 1 Corinthians 9.24, he said this, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Then Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. That word that he uses for press there comes from the Greek agonizo where we get our English word agonize from. You've seen those races where the, the runners, they, they've, they've done you know three, four times around the track and then they see that line there, the finish line, and they're in agony. They're just pushing forward towards the finish line. That's what Paul is saying. I'm like a runner in the last stretch and it hurts but I'm going to make it. I am determined. The author of Hebrews, who may have been Paul, used the analogy of running a race as well. He said in Hebrews 12:1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. Now Paul's race was probably one of those circuit races where it was filled with obstacles. You know, he's thinking of the Greek races and it's probably, you know, one of those things. But, but, you know, for Paul, you know, he had tremendous hurdles and obstacles in his life. He had to dealt with, deal with uh, raising from, from raging persecution to physical danger to this, his personal thorn in the flesh. Remember that? Paul had some physical infirmity or problem. He asked the Lord three times to take it away, but the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. He allowed that to remain in Paul's life to keep him humble. He had this that difficulty to deal with. But Paul never gave up. And notice here that Paul just doesn't say, I ran the race. Yeah, I was in the race. No, he says, I finished the race. That's the key. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. See, we need to finish well. We need to, 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 to run fast. But, but it's a long distance run. It, it's, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And Paul says here, again, also in verse 7, uh, he also says, I've kept the faith. So he says that I've been, a, I've been in this fight, a good soldier, I've been diligent as an athlete, I've been a faithful steward, I've kept the faith. Let me tell you, Paul was faithful unto the end. You know, one thing that you and I should be praying for is that God will help you and I to be faithful to the end. How many people do you know that, that started well, but they finished badly? You know, that they start well, but they don't, they don't finish well. They start the race that God set before them. They allow some temptation 
or some besetting sin to hinder them. The Bible is filled with stories of so many that had tremendous potential, but they crashed and burned. You think of people like King Saul. I mean, this guy, I mean, he was head and shoulders above, above the rest. He was tall. He was handsome. He was brave, anointed by God to be the king, even prophesied incredible potential. Yet he disobeyed God repeatedly and allowed his pride to get in, in his way and paranoia and jealousy ultimately consumed him. And he met a tragic end on the battlefield. And it's interesting that his epitaph was, I played the fool and erred exceedingly. What a wasted life. What about Samson? I mean, you talk about power. This guy had, had such ability to, to vanquish his enemies, he would kill them left and right there in the battlefield. He killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a single donkey. Yet he went down in flames. You know his story. Because he played around with sin and, and ultimately played, sin played around with him, culminating in his own death. See, they started well, but they didn't finish well. They ran fast in the beginning, but they didn't get across that finish line like they should have. That was not going to be Paul. Paul was finishing his race. He wanted to join the ranks of those that finished well. Men like Caleb in the Old Testament. Joshua, who finished well. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, Billy Graham, and he's lived a life above reproach. And he said one of his fears in ministry in his life is that he would do something that would dishonor God before his calling was over. And, you know, he's done nothing to dishonor the Lord. But his fear was that he didn't want, want to do anything that would dishonor God or to bring shame to him or reproach to his name. You know, Billy Graham could say, as, as, as Paul said, I have kept the faith. Or Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, that had kept the faith. Chuck was a man of God's word, a man of grace in his life, did nothing to dishonor the Lord, and the Lord took him home. Here, Paul is saying, I've kept the faith, and I want to follow in their footsteps, you know, to cross that finish line. Why? Well, because there's a prize that awaits for you and to me, and for me. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who loved, have loved his appearing. Now, there's more than one crown mentioned in the New Testament that we're going to receive. Now, that bothers me a little. And I'll tell you why. Because I recognize that all that I am and all that God has called me to do can only be done through Him giving me the power and the ability to do those things. So then why am I going to be wearing a crown? I mean, if I finally arrive in heaven in the presence of God and His glory and He turns to me and says, here's a crown for doing everything I gave you the power to do. It's like... Okay, but if you gave me the power to do it, then why in heaven am I wearing a crown? But that's why Revelation chapter 4 comes into play, because the elders who are there in God's presence with the crowns on before the Holy of Holies, they're taking their crowns off and they're just laying them before the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm not to be wearing this crown. This crown is yours. You deserve this crown. And they take off the crown and they give it before the Lord at the feet of Jesus. And he sits there in this incredible throne with all these angels and all these thousands upon thousands of people worshiping, him, worshiping our king and adoring, adoring him. And I love that picture. But for the Lord to place a crown upon my head, no, Lord, please take it, please. What, what am I doing wearing the crown? And you know what the Lord's going to do? He's going to pick that crown up as I lay it to him on his throne. He's going to pick it up. He's going to put it back on my head. Why? Because it's a crown of his righteousness. Why do I get a crown of righteousness? Because it's His righteousness. He lives within me. 
See, he, it's his right that is in me, so that, that means I can wear his crown. He has exchanged my sinful condition for his righteousness. There's been a swap. He wore the crown of thorns that I so rightly deserved so that I might wear his crown of righteousness that he so rightly deserves to wear. Now again, there's the other crowns mentioned in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, there's a crown of life. He says it's given to all those who will be faithful even unto death. And some think that it's the same crown that Paul is talking about right here. But understand, the only way we can wear any crowns is to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. Paul says, I'm going to get a crown, and not only me, but he says, you will also. Look what he says. He says, there's later for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, let me ask you, are you longing for, are you loving Jesus' appearing? I mean, are you really waiting and looking for his return? Are you able to say right now, Lord, I would love for you to appear right now. Right now. Right? And I thought I'd give it another Sunday, another shot. But, but I think that's seriously something that we can all say, you know, all say, but we may not always seriously desire that the Lord may come right now. I think for that reason, from time to time, we need to check our own hearts and see where we're at. Because I do think that, yes, there are times that we really are waiting for and anticipating His return, but there might be other times where we're saying, oh, hold on, Lord, not right now. Just give me a few minutes because I've not been exactly living the way that I want to be living when you come to take me up in the rapture of the church. I'm living a little bit ashamed. My walk isn't with you where I want it to be. So whenever you're feeling that way, I think that can be a good indication that as a believer that something is not right in your life. I know we talked about this before. I would not to be, want to be doing anything that I would be ashamed of if the Lord would rapture His church right now. I mean, for sake of an illustration, imagine this. What if? I'm not saying this would happen. It would never happen. Well, what if? Okay, what if when the rapture of the church takes place and Jesus returns in the air for His church and He looks down and He says, Ooh, hold on a minute. We may not take Tom, not quite yet. I mean... He's in the middle of watching this movie that he probably shouldn't be watching. He's going to kind of be embarrassed if we take him. So, so let's just wait 20 more minutes till the movie's over. I mean, it's like suddenly there's this rapture of the church and we're all hanging on in midair. We're waiting for 20 more people to put down their beers and put out their cigarettes. Then we'll come back for those guys once they're done so they'll feel a little more comfortable when they stand before Jesus. Otherwise, man, if they, they stand before Jesus in heaven and they're still puffing on that, that thing, then, then, oh, Lord, there's a whole lot. I know it's a bad habit, but. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if you're drinking beer and you're smoking cigarettes, you, it will make you miss the rapture and send you to hell. It may make you smell like you've been there, but, but, but it's not going to keep you from heaven. I'm just making a point here. Listen, if you're born again, if you've been regenerated, then you will go up to be with the Lord, period. Who goes up in the rapture of the church? The church. Christians. But listen, my point is, I don't want to be ashamed at His return. Therefore, I want to keep myself in that place where where I long for and I look for and, and I would love His appearing at any moment. That's why God's Word exhorts us to, to stop sinning. Because the more you and I are able to, as Paul says, reckon the old man dead, the more you and I will be able to anticipate with great joy and love the Lord Jesus' return. 
I mean, think about this. If you've ever been in a worship service and everybody is singing it, and, and sometimes you have a lot of people and they're all, hands are raised and you're worshiping the Lord and you hear the voices as you're singing and you're all worshiping the Lord and you're going, Lord, I could go be with you right now. Man, just, just, Lord, as I'm singing, and, and, and I've prayed this before, Lord, let's just rapture us right now. So as we're worshiping, oh, poof, right there, and we're continuing to worship the Lord. To me, that would be the coolest thing. Well, if that's your heart, if that's your desire, then there's a crown of righteousness promised, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. I want to stay right in that place. To fight the fight to the finish, to finish my race, to keep the faith, and to love his appearing. Finally, this brings us to our final point, his friends, Paul's friends. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. You know, I do not want to be a Demas. I want to be a Paul. Think about this. In Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul refers to Demas as his fellow laborer. Well, then he writes to the Colossians years later, and he says, Demas greets you. So he goes from a fellow laborer to Demas is high to verse 10, Demas has forsaken me. Demas has completely forsaken Paul altogether. Now understand that there exists a very real possibility of slowly drifting away from the Lord, even by those who were once one time used mightily by the Lord. It happened to Demas. I think we all know somebody who perhaps had been walking with the Lord at some time and now they're not. And that could happen to you. And I can tell you as a pastor that there are few greater sorrows in the ministry than to see people that, that, that you've led to Christ, that you've discipled, that you've served in ministry together, that you've walked with the Lord together, and to see that they're, they're far from fellowship, that they're no longer walking with the Lord. How does it happen? Well, read on. Demas says, Paul says, Demas, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Paul didn't want, or Demas didn't want to fight the fight anymore. And he didn't want to be, be around Paul fighting the fight. And he looked at the world and he looked at the things going on in the world and says, you know what? I'm just going to go back to the world. Listen, don't get caught up in the entertainment and the distractions or the cares of this world because it's only going to distract you and I and pull you away from serving the Lord. Now Paul does mention a few others of his friends that are still running that race that Paul had personally sent out to, to further the ministry. And I love this because, you know, it's like, like a pastor's going, okay, I got this base covered. I'm going to send this guy over here. This is what we're going to do. Look at verse 10. He goes, uh, Christians uh, left for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for, to me for ministry. And Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. I like that. Now, Tychicus went to the church of Ephesus, Ephesus probably because Timothy was coming to where Paul was at. And then this Mark here that Paul mentions, here is verse 11. It's interesting this is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. It's interesting because in Acts chapter 13, Mark decided to go on a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. And, and while he was on that journey, he kind of whipped out. He kind of got cold feet and he, he decided to go back home. So then the second time when Paul was about to go out on the second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul says to Mark, you can't come with us. Now Barnabas, who was a close friend of the Apostle Paul, said, look, Come on, let's take Mark with us. He can come. And Paul said, no, Mark's not going to come. He wimped out on the first trip, and I'm not going to take wimps on the second trip. It's paraphrased. You're not going to find that in your Bible. But, but, but Barnabas says, no, 
I see a changed heart. I know we can, he can make it this time. And Paul says, well, if he goes, I'm not going. And there's this great division there. And so Barnabas sets out with John Mark, and Paul sets out with a man named Silas. Now it's Paul and Silas, and Barnabas and Mark. And they go their different directions. And God used both of them, both, both mightily in different ways. But what's interesting is Barnabas' name means encourager. Encourager. And he was an encourager. See, Barnabas got a hold of this young Mark guy and, 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 and came alongside of him and continued to disciple him, continued to encourage him. And pretty soon Mark starts to grow up and he's growing up in the Lord so much so that at the end of Paul's life, Paul now says, hey, Tim, remember Mark? Go get him. I, I need him. He, he's good for the ministry. Yeah, I know at one time he wimped out and, and Barney took him and, and encouraged him and helped him. Now, now he's helpful for the ministry. And I said, well, who was right? Paul who said the work is too important to take a risk on someone who might turn away or Barnabas who said we need to work with anyone who shows even a little potential. They both were. See, there are those who have a vision and a passion for the work at large and there are those who have a heart and a vision for each individual. And although these two groups are not always see eye to eye, both are needed. And here at the end of Paul's life, Paul sends for John Mark, for evidently Barnabas had indeed accomplished that good work in him. Now Alexander Coppersmith, that's a different, the Coppersmith, that's a different story. Look at verse 14. Alexander the Coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. And I think we've all faced some Alexander the Coppersmiths in our lives. You know, people who are just out to get you. Notice that of Alexander, Paul didn't fret and get all upset and frustrated. He's not saying here, oh, get him, Lord. Get, get what he deserves. This, Paul is not pronouncing some curse upon Alexander. Rather, Paul is just stating what is true. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. Now, if anyone knew the severity of that, it would be Paul. Because Paul was once in that place where Alexander was, persecuted the church. You know, uh, you know and, and so Paul would not say, how could Alexander act this way? How could he be so mean? He understood. But he wants Timothy to understand, to watch out for this guy because he's been causing harm. In the same way, though, we may be slandered as Christians and put down, ridiculed, and have to face intense persecution... Know that God sees and knows and understands and for those Alexanders, they will have to answer for how he or she treats the child of God. But our part is we need to let it go. Don't hold a grudge. Don't hold bitterness. Just like Paul be able to say, may the Lord repay him according to his works and we move on. Now I want to go back to verse 13. This is important. Paul says in verse 13 to Timothy, he says, bring the cloak that I left with carpets at Troas when you come and the books, especially the parchments. So winter's coming, Paul's saying, hey, bring me my coat. But he really wanted his books. It's the Greek word, uh, biblion. And some commentators believe that these were actually referred to the Gospels that have been written. So Paul says, my days are limited here. Bring me God's word. It's been said that you'll know what a man's passion is by what he does when he has nothing to do. Paul didn't have anything to do. Had no teaching to prepare, no sermon to outline. Yet, he says, even in the hour that's come, my departure's at hand, pulling up the anchor, my tent's ready to come down, I still want to know more about Jesus. Bring me the word. 
He says in verse 13, especially the parchments. These most likely refer to the Old Testament scrolls. Paul wanted the word of God even at the end of his life. Finally, he lets us know about the remainder of his friends. Look at verse 16, 17. He says, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. See, even though Paul had felt forsaken, he says that when, when he was all alone, he had an awareness of the Lord's presence. And I think we need to understand that as well. Even when we felt times of, of being all alone, the Lord is there. Then I like in verse 17, Paul says, Oh, by the way, also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. I, I mean, you're reading, yeah, no one was with me and, and no one's there and I fought the good fight. And, oh, by the way, I was delivered out of the mouth of a lion. I mean, to me, that, that's a big deal. I mean, you know, it sounds like something small the way Paul puts it, but, but to, to Paul, it was like, hey, you know what? God delivered me. Now, some believe Paul was actually, you know, placed in the Colosseum, you know, before he was beheaded and, and, and a lion, you know, God delivered him. Others believe he's kind of referring to Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Paul is saying that. But, but whether Paul was referring to an actual lion or to Satan, the fact is God came through. God delivered him. Finally, verses 18 through 22, he says, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the house of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus. Dear utmost to come before winter, Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Snoopy, Schroeder, Charlie Brown, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. So as we come to the end of Paul's second letter to Timothy, we come to Paul's epitaph. His final recorded words. What were they? Timothy, after all has been said and done about the perilous times that are going to come your way, the challenges that you're going to be faced in ministry, the Alexanders that you're going to run into, all these things, Paul sums up everything with one word. Grace. Grace be with you. Amen. And boy, don't we need God's grace. That's a word for all of us. God's grace is for you. He saved you by His grace. He wants you to walk daily by His grace. Our salvation is all of grace. And then He gets the glory. All that through God's grace He's brought to us, this church, is, is, is to bless and encourage one another. I want to back up just for a moment and then we'll close. Verse 11. Paul says, Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for ministry. Mark was useful for ministry because Barnabas didn't give up on him. Now understand, there are Barnabases here at Calvary Chapel. And there are Marks. There are some that have stepped back from serving the Lord because it seemed too difficult. Maybe it seemed you know, hard and they've turned away. But there are Barnabases here. Those encouragers that, that reach out to the, to the Marks and encourage them to get back into the race, to keep the good fight, to don't give up. I know we have Barnabases, and we have Mrs. Barnabases here at the church. And, and, and you Barnabases need to get with the young John Marks here, and you Mrs. Barnabases need to get with the younger lady so that the next generation is becoming useful for ministry. Barnabas learned a lot from Paul, and Paul went in his direction, and Barnabas took time to spend it with John Mark and, and went in his direction, and, and, and we see Paul here is exhorting Timothy, and Barnabas is affecting Mark's life. We just see the ministry working together. Believers, Christians, this is what it's all about. 
us being effective in one another's life. This is a body ministry. So as you take the time to minister to the person sitting next to you this morning, then what ends up happening is incredible. Because as we grow in the church, we then have more people who are growing in their walks with the Lord and more useful for the ministry. Then we're able to serve more and go out and reach more people with the love of Jesus Christ. We all have the same ambition, the same like, the same desire. We want to glorify Jesus Christ. So that when that day comes for us, that we can say, look back on our lives, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Let me ask as we close, are you ready to be offered? Today, if if the time of your departure was at hand, are you ready to go to be with the Lord? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know that your life is right with God? Are you ready to go? Listen, you shouldn't go on another moment unless you know for sure. So as soon as the service is over, we're going to have the elders up front here, the Barnabases that love to pray with you and give you a Bible, let you know what it means to, to walk with the Lord. Or even if you need prayer, even if you're going through something in your life, that's what the guys are up here for after your service, to, to, to pray with you and, and to encourage you so that we can bring glory to God in all that we do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul's life, that he did not give up, Lord, even though at times it was he went through great difficulties, Lord. He kept his eyes focused on you. Help us, Lord, each one of us here to remain faithful to what you've called us to do, Lord, to not look back, to not, Lord, have any weight or sin that would hinder us in the race that we're running, Lord, but that we would look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us. Lord, help us to walk in that grace in all that we do. And finally, Lord, if there's anybody here that is yet to give their life to you, to to surrender their hearts to you completely, Lord, would you touch their heart this morning that they would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. And we give you all the glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand and we'll do one last song together. To wine, open the eyes of the blind.